Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll consider the outlook for inflation, which grew by a surprising 7% last year. That's the largest increase since 1982. Our guest is Jason Furman, whose op-ed, Four Reasons to Keep Worrying About Inflation, was published last week in the Wall Street Journal. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins the conversation, along with Concord's chief economist, Steve Robinson. Jason Furman was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama from August 2013 to January 2017, And now he is a professor uh, at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Well, uh, inflation is a problem that uh, policymakers haven't had to deal with in many decades, Um, but it is certainly back on the agenda now. And uh, there are all sorts of theories about why, from uh, fiscal stimulus to loose monetary policy and surging demand and supply chain issues uh, uh, and the pandemic. Uh, but anyway, policymakers need to deal with um, inflation. Now it's been surging and there's sort of a conventional wisdom that it's going to settle back down. Uh, they're no longer being called transitory, but there's some question about when it will settle down. Jason, you had a, uh, a op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently that said you indicated you weren't so sure as some of the general consensus that inflation was going to come down uh, in the next year or two. And you listed four reasons. Before we get into the details, could you just kind of give us a a uh, high-profile summary of what those reasons were? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Fed Chair Jay Powell retired the term transitory, But most of the forecasts still assume that after being 7% this year, inflation next year will be in the twos, possibly even in the low twos. I'm less sure. There are some forces that are going to be pushing inflation down, but I think we shouldn't neglect four forces pushing in the opposite direction. The first is that we're going into 2022 with labor markets that are much tighter than we went into 2021 with. Nominal wages rising faster, quits very high, the unemployment rate comparatively low. Second, there is very good reason to expect another year where demand is above trend as fiscal stimulus continues to spend out and supply is below trend as the pandemic continues to affect the ability to produce things. Third, inflation depends on inflation expectations and consumers, businesses, markets, and forecasters are all expecting higher inflation this year than they were last year that will feed into actual inflation. Um, And finally, I think and hope that the pandemic will become more of a controlled endemic this year, that that will be good news for our lives. But with that, there'll be a burst of extra spending 
and some more inflation. So um, <clears throat> let me just uh, get into a little bit of the the split here between why why this came about. I mean, is there one area that that you think got inflation going? Was it loose fiscal policy, loose monetary policy, or was it just fallout from things that had to be done because of the crisis? Most of the inflation we've seen to date is, I pin roughly half of it on the fallout from the pandemic. It's a global phenomenon, there's global supply chains, and I'd pin about half of it on fiscal policy being excessive. We needed a really large response to the crisis. It was a huge one. Uh, we got a response that was probably about a trillion dollars more than we needed, and that's fed into inflation. I think the Fed has been a little bit behind the curve, but that's probably not affecting the inflation numbers yet, because monetary policy really matters with a lag. What the Fed does today matters for inflation, say, a year from now. And so the Fed probably should have adjusted more quickly. But even if they had, we'd be in roughly the same place right now. Tori, you want to jump in with a question? Um, I actually was curious about it. So one of the reasons you cited was the continued strong demand uh, in the economy. And I was curious about where that might be coming from. Because on one hand, you look at, at least in terms of fiscal policy, the, the pandemic unemployment insurance payments have ended. Um, the, the the bonus payments that families got uh, during uh, COVID have ended. The the expanded child tax credit payments, uh, the, the monthly portion of those have lapsed at this point. Um, so there's this question as to whether or not Americans either are or are not flush with cash. And if they're not flush with cash because the fiscal spigot has pretty much spent out, are we still anticipating this 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 really strong demand, this pent up demand that we've been experiencing, for example, over maybe the last six to eight months? I think it should calm down some from the last six to eight months for all the reasons you said. But I also see a number of reasons why demand will remain strong and certainly stronger than the course we were on prior to the pandemic. Um, the first is what I and other people have called excess saving stock. Um, people got a lot of these transfers and they didn't spend all of them. Mm -hmm. Also, especially in 2020, people cut back their spending on travel, restaurants, movies, all sorts of things. That means people have more cash today than they had going into the pandemic. So they still have the ability to spend more. Second, the federal fiscal response is mostly over, but states are flush with cash and you're seeing more states increase spending or cut taxes. Third is the fact that um, interest rates have been so low. And mm -hmm. for certain types of interest-sensitive spending, especially cars and houses, that really matters. And that's through um, the central bank. And then finally, I think there's still some pent-up demand, especially for services, that you know people are to some degree taking more vacations. And as soon as it feels much safer than it does <laughs> now, we'll take a lot more. And I think that's probably still a factor, but that's, that's very speculative. We've never been through an experience like this before.
And in talking about some of the other effects, I'm uh, I'm curious about the interplay between tight labor markets, the the, the large demand for labor, uh, and about uh, inflation expectations. Um, As employees, excuse me, employers have to bid up wages in order to lure more employees back to the market. Um, Are they then in turn uh, having to raise prices in order to accommodate that increased cost to their bottom line. Is there any reason to be concerned about uh, a wage price spiral uh, as expectations sort of get caught up in the demand for higher wages, which then repeats through higher prices, which then repeats through higher wage demands, et cetera? That's a great question, and no one knows the exact answer to it. Um, A wage price spiral used to be an important part of the inflationary dynamics in the 1960s and 1970s. We haven't seen one for four decades, and it's not clear we're seeing one yet. Um, Now, one view is that they only existed because there were a lot of labor unions, and there were a lot of contracts that specified cost of living adjustments. And without contracts like that and labor unions like that, they're the th- a thing of the past. That's possible, but I'm less sure. I think it's more likely that we haven't had wage price spirals because we haven't had much price inflation. Now that we have a lot of inflation, people are going to be asking for more wage increases. They may not get them right away, but they'll get them eventually. And conversely, now that businesses have to pay their employees more, um, they're going to want to pass those costs on to consumers and they'll be more able to because so many other businesses are doing the same thing. So I expect it to come back. And when I say spiral, that doesn't mean it goes from seven to eight to nine to 10 to 20, um, but it could be just a source of keeping inflation high above the 2% the Fed would like it to be. Yeah. So let me, let me follow up a little more on, on the whole inflation expectations question. Um, if you look at some of the consumer surveys, uh, I think the, the new numbers out from the New York Fed, uh, consumers are expecting 6% inflation this year and 4% inflation over the next two years. But if you look at the bond market, uh, the spread between <laughs> between long-term bonds, 10-year bonds, and, and, the, and the TIPS or the, the, uh, the Treasury inflation-protected bonds is still just over 2%. So you have you know, basically a disconnect between consumer expectations and the bond market expectations. So you know, who, who, who's right and who's wrong? And what, what's your view on, on that disconnect? And the most important disconnect we've seen on inflation expectations is short-run expectations versus long-run expectations. And you see this to some degree for consumers, for financial markets, um, and for businesses. If you ask them about inflation over the next one to three years, everyone's marked it up quite a lot. If you ask about inflation from, say, 2027 to 2032, um, you know, for sometimes that's called the five-year, five-year, five years from now to five years from then, um, that hasn't gone up very much. And I interpret that as saying that there's a belief that there's momentum in inflation, but also a belief that the Fed will eventually get it under control and will do what it needs to, to bring inflation back to two. And almost everyone seems to think we're not in some new regime. We're just in a temporary period of high inflation that will go away. Um, There's a separate issue, which is that consumers always have a higher forecast for inflation than um, anyone else does. And they also believe that inflation is higher than the official statistics think. And 
Um, I don't know exactly why that is. Yeah, so let me follow up slightly differently. So I, I was actually looking at some data from the 1970s through the early 80s. And what you'll observe, so we had a inflation spike uh, in around 1974. Inflation was up around 10 or 12%, but the bond market hardly moved at all. Um, and then inflation went back down. And then you had another spike in the year around 1980, and inflation again was up around 12 to 14%. Now, at that point, the bond market reacted, you know, sort of like the old saying, you know, uh, fool me once, shame on me, or no, I'm sorry, fool me once, shame on you, and fool me twice, shame on me. So the bond market basically got the message that, hey, you know, we missed this first round of inflation, but now it's back. And what, what you saw happen was inflation started coming down, but interest rates remained up. I mean, it wasn't until like the mid 1980s before inflation uh, or before interest rates came back down to the level they were before. So do, do we run a risk? I mean, you know, you're saying, okay, the consumers are more pessimistic about short run inflation and the bond markets are saying, no, no, everything's contained in the long run. But in fact, if the inflation per persists, you know, could you have a situation where the bond market overreacts and they keep in interest rates high longer, higher and longer than in fact would be arguably necessary simply because they don't trust that, that the Fed has the inflation situation in hand. There is definitely a risk that right now financial markets believe the Fed. They think the Fed has the inflation under control. Maybe not this year, maybe not even next year, but within a few years that they're going to get it under control. And we benefit a lot from that credibility that the Fed has right now. That's credibility that it fought really hard to earn over the last 40 years, beginning with Paul Volcker, who initially was not believed, as you just said, um, and markets were wrong. They should have believed him. So the Fed has a ton of credibility. It is a risk that they lose that credibility. I think they understand that that's a risk. I think that's why they're probably going to raise interest rates starting in March. And so you know, I hope what you just cited as a possibility doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because they're very aware of it and they want to make sure that it doesn't happen. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, you wrote a November article for the Peterson Institute where you, were, you said in your paper that conditions warrant continued expansionary monetary policy but should move in a direction that is less expansionary. So I take that to mean is the Fed should take their foot off the gas pedal and coast, but they shouldn't slam on the brakes. Do you sort of feel similarly at this point in time? I feel similarly at this point in time, a little bit more nervous about the recommendation uh, than I felt in November. And just to you know, use terminology, I thought your metaphor was exactly right. Now, from my perspective, anytime interest rates are below, the Fed funds rate, the one that the Fed targets, is below about two or two and a half percent. That's like having your foot on the accelerator. Anytime it's above two and two and a half percent, that's like tapping on the brakes. Right now, we have the accelerator down all the way with interest <laughs> rates at zero. They should, over the course of this year, get them to one, next year, get them to two, and then the foot will be entirely off the gas. I also think, though, they absolutely have to be watching uh, the speedometer, watching the hills that were going up and down, and be prepared to do, you know, 
potentially more likely more than that, possibly less than that, depending on what circumstances warrant. And what are the risks that um, are the, I mean, there is, there is a risk, but I mean, how much of a risk is it that this tightening could lead to a recession? The tightening that they're embarked on now is pretty measured. You know, it is something like every other meeting. That's something that they've done many times before. I think that's fully consistent with a soft landing. The problem is if inflation this year ends up being five or 6% and they feel they need to ratchet interest rates up much more quickly than they're currently planning on, that's when you get the danger of recession. If things work according to the current plan for interest rate increases, it'll be fine. If um, they get backed into a corner though, that's more of a problem. And that's what they're trying to avoid is being we've been talking, to that corner. We've, yeah. We've been talking about the Fed. Are there uh, on monetary policy, on fiscal policy, are there some things that the Biden administration and Congress should be doing that they haven't done already that would help the situation? I mean, there's some things which aren't fiscal policy, which are related to the supply side of the economy. There's fewer tools there and less to be done, but the administration has done some good things in terms of you know, uh, assisting American ports and helping them operate more smoothly. There's more things we could do on the supply side, including increased immigration, uh, reducing tariffs, and looking for any regulations that are currently keeping prices high, but I don't think all of that would make a big quantitative difference. In terms of fiscal policy, fiscal policy was too large in March that contributed to the inflation that we have now. I don't think it needs to be in charge of handling it going forward. I think demand really should be managed by the Fed and, and very rarely, only if you're in a recession, handled by uh, Congress and the president. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are then about Build Back Better and what what should that look like going forward? Could you, before, before you start that answer, Jason, then Tori, did I do it again? It again. <laughs> <laughs> Every week, Tori asks a big question at about the time we have to take our first break. So uh, you, can, you can think about that, Jason, as we take our commercial break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Jason Furman, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration, and now a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Jason Furman, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration, and now a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And uh, when we took the break, Tori, you were asking a really impactful question about Build Back Better. Yeah, we were talking about inflation and fiscal policy, which led me to you know, inquire about the, the, the future of Build Back Better. You know, right now it's, it's sort of stalled. 
Um, and I was wondering where, where, what, what the future lies for Build Back Better and what you think Democrats ought to do. Well, I am supportive of Build Back Better. I don't have a prediction for you about whether or not it will pass, but I'm supportive. But let me tell you, though, how I think about it. And I think there's arguments on both sides, but a framework for thinking about it. The first consideration is inflation. I think that's a negligible consideration. Build Back Better is spread out over time. It's mostly paid for. Parts of it increase the productive side of the economy. And that's why when nonpartisan groups like the Penn Wharton budget model have looked at it, they found essentially a negligible impact on inflation over the medium term. So the inflation discussion we've been having, not relevant for Build Back Better. There's a second set of considerations around fiscal sustainability. I am less worried about that, I think, than the Concord Coalition is, but I think that's something where honest people um, disagree and isn't certain, and one could ask about fiscal sustainability, and if you want to, we can drill deeper into that. What I'm mostly focused on is, does it advance um, priorities? Does it help address climate change? Does it result in better education for children so they can grow up and participate more productively in our society? Not every piece of it is perfect, but on balance, I think it does a pretty good job of addressing climate change, child poverty, and our economic future. It does need to be better focused, though, um, as an economic matter, having programs that are permanent rather than temporary is much better. And you know, maybe they should add some deficit reduction into the bill as part of the prioritization, um, maybe for economic reasons, if not for political ones. Here's the, the thing that, um, you know, we've been concerned about on the fiscal side of it. And I think there are a lot of things in the Build Back Better Act that need to be addressed in terms of long-term economic growth. I think we would probably agree on that. We certainly think that the growth of the labor force, trying to bring more people into the labor force and better worker training and productivity, whether that's investment or worker training, uh, needs, to be, needs to be done. The, the problem has been with the... Uh, pay fors and the timing, you know, the, the, the timing gimmicks of starting new programs and then having them expire and using permanent tax cuts to, to make it look like it's, it's paid for. And even that might not be such a problem if we didn't already have, you know, growing, perpetually growing budget deficits going into the situation. So I, I do think on the fiscal side, it's important to be able maybe not focus on deficit reduction, but to be able to have a program that's going to be at least sustainable on its own over the, over the longer term. Yeah. So a lot of what can build back better expires very quickly. There are child tax credits that only last one year. There's funding to encourage states to set up preschool programs, but then they're only funded for, I think, three years. And most everything is like that. I think that's problematic because one of two things will happen. One possibility is that those programs get extended, they're not paid for, and there's a big increase in the deficit. That's probably what you're most worried about. That's what Senator Manchin is most worried about. And I think that's a legitimate thing to worry about. I'm even more worried that none of these programs are gonna be so popular and Republicans will be control at least one chamber of Congress 
and so that you won't be able to extend them. And so you'll have all this effort and then you'll only get one year of investment in children through the tax credit. A lot of states will end up not setting up preschool programs because they won't believe that the funding will be continued by Congress. And so I think the uh, making these programs temporary both threatens higher deficits and it threatens the programs being unsuccessful on their own terms. So whether you're obsessed with deficits or could care less about deficits, I think either way, you would rather have fewer programs and make sure those programs are designed well and are permanent. That, that, that reminds me of Supreme Court opinions where you have different justices saying, we all agree on the result, but for very different reasons. <laughs> Uh, so Ju Justice Furman and Bixby and Gorman could, and Robinson could all agree on that particular rationale. Uh, Steve, uh, do you have a, a, a question? Well, yeah, I mean, just, just to sort of follow up on, the, on this point, I mean, you know, the Biden administration has been talking about how transformative these policies are. And yeah, it's true that if you did them all permanently, they might very well have some transformational effects. But you know, the dilemma the Democrats have is that they want to do all of these programs, but they seem unwilling to pay for them and they seem unable to find the offsets to pay for them. And so, you know, I guess the, the, the dilemma is, you know, do, do you choose, you know, one priority and actually pay for it permanently um, or do you bite the bullet and come up with more offsets? I mean, it just seems like they've, they've put themselves in a box and they really have no way out. You're being a little bit unfair to the Democrats, at least <laughs> compared, to the, compared to the Republicans. Oh, no, most, I, of I, the, <laughs> most of the Republican tax cuts has not even been a pretense of paying for them. Mm -hmm. And here the Democrats have numbers that on paper add up and are paid for. There's then a bunch of stuff that's gone into that. And we've been discussing what's gone into that. In fact, if you look at where 95% of Democrats are, they would do even more tax increases on high-income households and corporations as a way to pay for these investments. So you know, there's not enough. I wish you know, we could do what other countries do and say, you know what, paid leave is so wonderful. We're going to have a little bit of a payroll tax. You're all going to pay a little bit more, and you're all going to get this wonderful benefit as a result, just like with Social Security. Uh, you pay for it and you get the benefit. That conversation about broader pay-fors is entirely absent from both the Democratic and Republican Party. Um, but, you know, taxing high-income households and corporations, you can't pay for everything you want that way, but you can pay for a lot. You know, that's a, an idea I wish was on the table that um, incorporating paid family leave into the social security system with, you know, paying for it with a, a bit of a like in the in the payroll tax, I think would make a great deal of sense. And I, I do wish we could have these these conversations. I think part of the reason, part of the problem of of rolling everything into a huge three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill at, at, at the beginning is that it it did cut off some potential avenues of compromise. Now, look, I'm not I'm not saying that the Republicans were out there as willing partners. So don't, <laughs> I, I realize the the problems and, and, you know, I can understand the reasons for trying to do a big reconciliation bill and push it through. But there, you know, there are ways that I think um, maybe uh, there the, the could have been there. There are other ways of doing it. But anyway, um, I wish we could have those conversations. I want to 
raise one other one other point. Uh, you know, we're hearing a lot of talk about uh, with the Omicron variant that um, there might need to be another round of COVID relief, particularly for hard hit industries like restaurants, hospitalities, airlines. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this last time you were on the show back last year when the, the first CARES Act was in the mix. What's your take on um, going back into that, you know, whether we would need to have another round of COVID relief and, and if so, how should it be structured? So let me distinguish between the health response and the economic response. If the administration asks for anything related to testing, related to vaccination, related to equipment for our hospitals, Congress should fund that. Um, funding on the health side is very cheap compared to the benefits it has for lives and our economy. I'm not expert enough to know if more money is needed for that, but if more money is needed for that, we should spend whatever it takes on the health response. On the economic side, I think it would be premature to be passing any new legislation. The previous rounds of legislation were larger than they needed to be. There's still a lot of excess cash out there. I'm optimistic that Omicron passes through the country very quickly. And finally, it may be appropriate for states to set up some relief for local small businesses and most of them have the resources to do it if that's something they want to do. So absolutely move ahead on the health response. On the economic side, we're not there yet in terms of needing it. Tori? No, I like that answer. <laughs> uh, just a, a, a real quick pivot back to, to jobs and the, and the labor market. Um, what do you... Uh, what do you expect the January jobs report to, to look like? Um, and this, uh, you know, we've still got a number of what, what, three, four million people that are sitting on the sidelines that were employed before COVID, but still aren't on the COVID or still aren't back in the job market post COVID. Uh, any thoughts on, on those two factors? So the January jobs number will be, just incredibly noisy because of Omicron, the way it's ravaging our economy, and it'll be hard to interpret. So I'm not even going to be looking that carefully at it. Mm -hmm. If you look over the next couple of months, I expect continued improvement in the labor market as the United States has more momentum, but that that improvement in the labor market will slow. So we'll start to think of it more like 300, 350,000 jobs a month that we're looking for rather than the 500,000 to a million jobs that we you know, got on and off in 2021. In terms of those people on the sideline, I don't know. No one knows. It's, it's a remarkably heterogeneous group. It's about, of the people who haven't come back, about half men, half women. It's about half over 55, about half under 55. I think there's a lot of different reasons people have stopped working and we don't fully understand them nor uh, be able to predict them. My guess is that most of them will come back, but I don't know. Steve, do you have a, a quick question? Um, no, I guess to, to return a little bit to, to the monetary policy side. So, I mean, the Fed implemented quantitative easing after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. 
Um, and it was sort of viewed as their, you know, that also came along at the same time they were allowed to do uh, interest on reserves. And so that sort of came along as a policy of, you know, interest rates are falling, inflation is falling, we're worried about deflation. You know, this is the policy we're implementing to, to fight the lower bound. Um, and it's arguably been successful both for the financial crisis. And then, of course, when COVID came along, they doubled down and Fed increased or Fed basically doubled its balance sheet. And so you can argue that the policy that they've implemented for the last you know, dozen years or so was in a low inflation environment. Now that inflation is moving in the opposite direction, you know, how does unwinding this policy, you know, I mean, this is sort of uncharted territory. I mean, is it, is it going to work? Uh, is there any precedent for you know, what they're doing and unwinding their balance sheet and how that's going to work in an inflationary environment? There's no precedent for this, <laughs> but, you know, if anything, it's less worrying in an inflationary environment than the more precarious, uh, not deflationary, but lowflationary environment that they did it in um, last time. It's going to be tricky. They're also going to want to unwind their balance sheet much more quickly than they did last time. That should probably be okay. But you know they'll need to be very careful and look at the feedback they're getting as they, you know, m- take the multi-year process of normalizing economic policy after a very um, and appropriately abnormal period for policy. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I have been talking with Jason Furman, uh, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration, and now a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Jason, thank you very much for your insights today. Tori, Steve, and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord's Chief Economist Steve Robinson about uh, some of the actions coming up in Congress. Congress has still got to deal uh, with the Build Back Better Act, the big bill that uh, contains a lot of the Biden agenda. I mean, they don't have to deal with it, but they, they really want to. Uh, uh, on the Democratic side, it's stalled right now. One of the things that uh, you know we've heard recently is there might be an effort to perhaps break it up into smaller component parts and maybe even try to get some bipartisan agreement on individual portions of it. Uh, Tori, what do you think about that strategy? Does it have any hope for moving things forward. I guess my overarching question is, is, is to what end? And, and uh, you know, it, it used to be in the, in the past where the House would pass legislation, send it over the Senate, knowing that it wasn't going to pass, but it would give them a message, right? Something to say to voters. It's like, we're trying, we're trying, but the Senate is the problem. And I think the way, uh, the, the economy is right now and the dissatisfaction among uh, so many voters. I don't think this this electoral strategy of blaming the Senate uh, for not passing the House's legislation 
uh, I don't think it's a winning strategy. I, I'm reminded of the, the the Carter Reagan debate in 1980, where 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 Governor then Governor Reagan was very successful in saying, you know, are you better off now than you were, you know, four years ago, for example. And I think what the American people are looking for right now is action. So if they're talking about the House is just talking about splitting off pieces of Build Back Better that they've already supported and sending it to the Senate and hoping for a different outcome is pure folly. Now, if they're willing to tinker with aspects of Build Back Better um, in the hopes of of securing uh, the, the, the two Democratic votes that they don't have right now in the Senate, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, and securing 10 additional votes from Republicans, which means moving dramatically to the center on some of these policies, then I think that might be a winning strategy. Um, But I don't know (laughs) if the House has the votes to pass something that's so centrist. I mean, I think it's absolutely imperative that in order to pass legislation that affects people's lives, Democrats have to move to the center. They have to move to the center. (laughs) And right now, the progressive wing of the party doesn't seem to be receptive to that message. So this whole notion of of splitting up the bill into individual pieces, you know, again, to what end? Is it for a message or is it to actually get something to the president's desk? And that, I think, is what makes the difference. Yeah, and that would mean... Splitting it up, to be clear, means not doing it through reconciliation because you would have these these individual bills in order to become law would have to get the, you know, like you said, it, have, it has to get Republican votes as well as uh, Democratic votes. And so, yeah, um, reconciliation is a one shot deal. One bill, one shot deal. They can't repeatedly pass things, you know, that's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, these smaller pieces, you got to go yeah, with yeah. a 60 vote vehicle. So. Right, exactly. So you either go one one route or the other route, although they could keep the reconciliation bill on ice and try to pass the individual bills, I suppose. And then if they didn't, they could, <laughs> if things change in the Senate, try to pass the, the one big bill. Um, I think it probably uh, does have to do somewhat with uh, messaging. And, and yeah, I mean, the question is, would they get any Republican votes? And right now that sort of be up in the air. Um, one thing that... I was gonna say, I, I, well, and I wanted to point something out to to those, you know, the, the fiscal responsibility crowd, you know, and that is when you start uh, negotiating with Republicans over how to pay for some of these centrist proposals, you know, that's sort of when things go crosswise. You know, we, we you know, we've talked often about, you know, bipartisanship. We love bipartisanship because the only, you know, lasting legislation is bipartisan legislation. But in this case, you know, are the pay fors, are the offsets going to survive contact with Republicans? You know, are they going to get their 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 centrist legislation across the desk, but are fiscal responsibility types like you and me going to be upset because then that legislation isn't paid for because Republicans won't support uh, 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 tax increases and Democrats won't support spending cuts in order to offset the cost of these proposals. Yeah, to that end, I mean, I'd point out that Joe Manchin is in favor of repealing the Trump tax cuts <laughs> to help pay for stuff. Uh, that probably wouldn't go over very well on the uh, on the Republican side in trying to get uh, votes to uh, pass the child care tax credit or or something like that. So yeah, I mean it's um, it's, it's still going to be a problem. Um, another thing that's coming up that we're hearing more and more about. We've talked a little bit about this on the uh, show before. 
is another COVID relief bill. It's getting uh, the messages are becoming particularly acute from, say, the restaurant industry or hospitality and even the airlines that are you know that have been hit uh, hard by the Omicron variant. I guess the question, uh, Steve, I would sort of put this to you: if we're if we're looking at another COVID relief bill, um, you know, are there questions about whether the economy is changing and whether money should be spent kind of investing in the economy of the future or propping up, I, I just to be blunt about it, propping up businesses that may be going out of business anyway because of the changing nature of the workforce? Well, yeah, that's that's the big dilemma. I mean, you know, the last couple of COVID relief bills were basically focused on, you know, temporary relief. You had the, the paycheck, paycheck Protection Program. The idea was that employers were going to be able to continue to pay their workers while the, you know, the, the economy was in, in a shutdown. And, you know, that would be a temporary measure. And then and, and once the, the, the virus passed, um, and you know, workers went back to work. That the temporary relief was no longer needed. But you know, the, the question now becomes, you know, has the economy changed? I mean, you know, the, the Omicron virus. Uh, I think the you know the weekly case, the rolling average weekly caseload is is eight hundred thousand. Um, you know, we haven't seen a corresponding increase in, in hospitalizations and deaths. But you know, if this virus continues to to mutate and continues to cause problems, the question is, will the economy undergo a, a permanent change? I mean, I've seen estimates that as much as 40% of the workforce could work from home. Now, consider the implications if that were to happen. Um, you know, all of the businesses, the restaurants, the, the office space, um, I mean, you would fundamentally change the economy in most major cities if if forty percent of the office workers <laughs> didn't didn't show back up uh, permanently, um, you know. And so, do you want to provide temporary relief to get us through, you know, the next wave of the pandemic, or do you want to recognize that the economy has changed in a fundamental way, and we're going to have to rethink? What what does economic assistance look like? And I mean, you know, we we just passed the infrastructure bill on the premise that we were going to build more infrastructure, and that usually is highways taking us into the cities, and you know, mass transit to take us into the cities. But what happens if people decide they don't want to go into the cities? You know, we're going to spend all that money building infrastructure that's not going to be used. Uh, I mean, these are really hard, fundamental questions that we haven't really even thought about, much less tried to, to, to design a plan to deal with. Now, I mean, you know, th this may be an overly pessimistic perspective, uh, and things may, in fact, return back to the way they were, you know, in another year or so. But if they don't, are we going to spend all this money doing things that, in fact, you know, we're building for the old economy, not the new economy? You could also take a slightly different perspective. I mean, if if office workers don't return to offices and the owners of the buildings are facing, you know, the inability to rent their space because there's no workers, they could repurpose and say, well, we need affordable housing. What if we build 
condos and apartments in these inner city buildings. And maybe we can convince people to come back to the cities, not to work and commute, but to, to actually live there. Now that might or might not be a viable alternative, but you know it, it's going to require people, I think, to sort of be a little more creative and thinking about where the economy might be going. The dilemma is figuring out which industries need to be saved in their current form to the extent that we might need them in an emergency later, as, as opposed to those industries that you know, should be allowed to change because there's no reason they're they're being done exactly the way they're being done, and that's the only way to do it. But that, but but figuring out which is which is is the challenge. And we know how how well the government picks winners and losers, right? <laughs> they, they, they don't have a good track record of right. picking the winners and losers. That's that's certainly the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think we'll have to follow this one closely. Um, both of these issues. Uh, on Build Back Better and, uh, and, and COVID relief if, if they do it. But that's all the time that we uh, have this week. I want to thank our guest, uh, previous guest, Jason Furman and uh, Tori and Steve for hopping on this uh, segment with me. Uh, I'm Bob Bixby. I'm your host for Facing the Future, and I'll be back next week with another edition of the program. 